welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm here with Jen Turner. Jen is the co-founder and co-director of the Trauma Sensor Trauma Center for Trauma Sensitive Yoga, which comes uh, under the auspices of the Center for Trauma and Embodiment. She's the editor of this book, Embodied Healing, uh, which I just finished reading uh, today. Uh, Jen, big welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Thank you. Um, so I'll, I'll just give you a, like, like a brief intro into how I kind of got interested in, in this topic. Um, so I've been doing yoga for like two, maybe uh, 20 years on and off. Uh, and then I started getting into therapy like 10 or 12 years ago. And what I found was I was getting really opened up in my therapy, you know, doing sort of talking therapy, feelings-based therapy. And then I'd, I'd go to like, these yoga sessions like really open and raw with all the sort of my emotions at the surface and i i just couldn't like handle the yoga classes because i'd be like bursting into tears and 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 suddenly this this practice that i've been doing that i'd found so kind of so nurturing suddenly just at some level became like the opposite of nurturing because it because it just felt like i was unable to express these feelings that were there for me like and the yoga teachers just telling me to smile and to do these perfect poses whereas Often, like, I just wanted to cry, you know, kind of into ball and cry because, like, a particular pose was triggering me and getting into feelings that I was also exploring in my therapy. So that was, like, my state of mind when I first came across uh, trauma-sensitive yoga uh, and the Black Lotus Project and that your co-founder, Dave Emerson, had written. And I was like, oh, this makes so much sense. Like, why don't we have trauma-sensitive yoga in the world? And I was kind of waving this book around at my yoga teachers, but none of them seemed to sort of get it. And um I, you know, I found one or two places where I could kind of practice yoga uh, where there was some level of sensitivity, but it just felt to me like the, the world hadn't um, really embraced that message of that book, or at least any of the yoga tenses I was um, frequenting. And then it kind of went to the back of my mind. I then started this pro- this podcast and, you know, it was like hundred opposite episodes in. And I thought, you know, we've got to, We've got to get someone on the show to talk about it because I think it's, you know, it's such an important message in, underneath, you know, what the work that you're doing. So, yeah, that's the that's the backstory. And um, and I wanted to, um, yeah, just to, just for other for the benefit of this is just talk a little bit about like the origins of trauma sensitive yoga and, and what we mean by that. Sure, sure. I mean, the work really began, like you you referenced, you know, Dave Emerson doing the Black Lotus Project and working with vets coming, you know, Vietnam vets or <clears throat> more recent vets um, in the United States that were sort of coming back, getting treatment, but not uh, sort of a holistic embodied care. And um, so Dave partnered with the trauma center at that time, Bessel van der Kolk, and started doing research um, and looking at the benefits. You know, I think part of from the in, its inception, what was really important to us with the model was making sure that it wasn't just anecdotal, like, oh, this worked for me and my body, this felt good. So I'm going to, you know, roll it out as like some kind of care model, really, you know, scrutinizing it through the, you know, Western research, but also bringing that, you know, long tradition of yoga and, you know, through subsequent studies through the years, pilot studies, and then larger, you know, randomized control trials, looking at Uh, And learning about how there are ways that uh, traditional yoga class and setting can actually trigger trauma, can um, be a kind of an unsafe place in terms of relational power dynamics. And some of the work that we had to do to 
deconstruct that and build something different. Um, while all the while knowing that there's really powerful, um, you know, things that we can gain and heal from in yoga, but that there's a lot of other noise sort of on the outside that can prevent that healing from happening. And so kind of quieting some of that and distilling down the, you know, the threads of things that we can talk about, like interoception and, you know, kind of self-awareness that really are incredibly healing um, as long as it's in a safe environment. Right. Yeah. So that, that makes sense. You sort of, you don't want to throw out the, the baby with the bathwater, right? Right. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. the learning process for us has certainly also been in rolling out trainings. You know, we have a global training program where we've really done a lot of work to understand the ways that, um, you know, this particular approach to trauma-sensitive yoga is oriented to where it was founded in, you know, Boston, Massachusetts, in the United States, you know, this kind of academic hub and, you know, beginning to train folks, see folks doing the work in the world and all kinds of settings um, globally, you know, working in Syria and working in Australia and, and working in South America and, and helping us to also adapt to become more culturally kind of competent and bring cultural humility to the work as well. Right. Okay. Yeah. And that comes through in the book because you've got stories from, you know, right across the world and, and many different cultures, um, yeah, represented in, in people's experience of, of the work. Um, and, and so, and how were you personally attracted to this? Were you a yoga teacher and then got into this? Like how, what's your journey to this? Yeah. You know, I, um, I was a yoga teacher. I actually had, did um, training in my undergrad as a classical singer, and I had a um, sort of a you know random factoid there. But I had a singing teacher who, at some point, I was like on stage doing some kind of aria. You know, I studied opera, and she looked at me and said, "You are not in your body." I'm like, "I'm standing right here, right here. What are you talking about?" She's like, "Go do some yoga. You will figure it out." And so, beginning to, I fell in love with yoga, and subsequently became a teacher found my way to also becoming a talk therapist um, as well. So I have that dual practice. I have mm. a private practice. I do traditional talk therapy, but it's never traditional because it's so inspired by this work. Um, but I actually met Dave Emerson in grad school when I was trying to write a paper about yoga and trauma. And I was like, where's the research? <laughs> They're like, well, it's, it's just getting started at these pilot studies at the trauma center. So it was a perfect connection and joined the team then and, and, um, you know, it's incredibly moving and powerful work. And, you know, I think much like a lot of folks in the field, although there is a stigma around this, you know, I'm drawn to the work because my own history, my own personal trauma history, my family trauma history, you know, as a way of curiosity and learning. Um, so there's that dual benefit that happens. Right. And so, so you, yeah, your, your singing teacher told you you need to get into your body. You did some yoga. And and so when did that moment come where you were like, okay, well, maybe is it, you know, did you, did you notice there was something not quite right with the yoga you were doing or like, how did that evolve in your, in your mind that there needed to be a different way to do it? You know, I think that for me, as I, you know, I, I loved the practice of yoga. And then as I went through my training and started to deepen into things, I would see this kind of double standard around like, listen to your body tune into what your experience is. And then in the very same or next breath, you know, sort of the message of like, listen to me, push through it. You know, um, I, I don't know if we've all maybe experienced that um, sort of statement. A lot of 
yoga teachers will say at the beginning of class, like, you know, do what you need to do. If you need to go into child pose or rest or whatever, that's fine. And then immediately it's clear that that's not actually true. <laughs> like do what I say. And like, I'm going to kind of kick your butt here. So, or whatever the, you know, whatever the intention is. And so I started to really tune into that double speak that happens, you know, mm. where folks say one thing and mean another. And, um, and found myself, and this is probably just in part my own personality, kind of being resistant to like, I'm just going to do what I'm going to do on my mat. And like, uh, you yeah, don't tell me what to do. <laughs> and so around that same time, you know, thinking a lot about trauma and, and, you know, trauma, as we know, typically happens within the context of trusting relationships, right? So it happens yeah. with, you know, a boss, a parent, partner, um, leveraging their power and coercing in one way or another, their you know, the person with less power and, you know, the, the yoga dynamic and the dynamics in a yoga space are, they mirror that, you know, it's whether we think about it as the guru structure, or we think about it even just as the teacher student structure that can be so easily um, shift into coercion and shift into those power dynamics. And, um, you know, that, that do mirror trauma and our kind of fertile soil for continuing abuse. And so we really, I, I started to get very curious about that piece of the work. In addition to, of course, all of the things that happen physiologically with our body when we get to drop in and sense and feel things. Yeah. So is this, this sort of intuition that there was some double speak going on and um, what some kind of innate sense that you needed to go deeper with, with the work you were doing? Exactly. Exactly. Right. And then, um, okay, so so then you join the, the the center, and they're doing some research on it. And so, I, I guess, yeah, d- describe a little bit about some of the things you started to learn, and what were the principles that were were um, being, I suppose, uh, espoused, but you know, but in the early work. Sure. You know, we were. I think in the very early work, even prior to my joining the team. Um, you know, there was a lot of talk around assists, which in some ways doesn't feel as relevant, particularly with COVID. But like, you know, at that point, assists were such a huge part of the yoga practice, like using your hands to connect with your students. You know, that was I, I learned in my yoga training that that I should touch every student in the room and as a way to say, like, I care and I'm here, you know, and what we started to learn is that touch is so potent and powerful. Um, and can be also, in, sure, incredibly therapeutic, but can be very triggering for folks. And it also continues to, you know, leverage that power dynamic where I am coming around. I'm saying you have choices and you can listen to your body, but I'm I'm using my hands on you, so I'm communicating something else. So again, there's that duality. You have choices. This is your space. This is your body. And then I come over and assist you. I'm saying exactly the opposite with my body. And so we started to really peel away that and and let go of assist, let go of um, any kind of command-based language, you know, understanding that with each, with each sort of shape and posture that folks do in the, in the session is an opportunity for them to claim their agency. So when I invite someone to move rather than command them or tell them to they get to opt out. It's like informed consent along, like as we go. And that's another way to say, hey, we can be in relationship and I'm leading this session, but this is actually your space. You know, it's, it's not about pleasing me. It's not about doing what I say. It's not about perfecting a pose. 
it's actually about beginning to explore and engage with your body. Um, Another thing that was really interesting, especially at the beginning of the research. So when we did the first randomized control trial, um, we, which started in 2007, I think we, um, we wanted to measure heart rate variability and we really wanted some kind of marker of kind of the tone of the nervous system, um, because it felt like that was, that was how we were going to sort of have our hard science to back up what we anecdotally knew, right? We needed that piece. It felt like what we found was that measuring the HRV was actually really challenging because it required participants who have this complex trauma history to be completely still for five minutes, which is incredibly challenging for anyone, let alone someone who has experienced complex chronic trauma. And um, so we couldn't use the data ultimately. It's not that the data that we got wasn't impactful. We just couldn't use half of it because people were sort of moving around and, you know, adjusting their bodies. That did help us to understand that actually the work that we were doing that was most impactful wasn't about regulating the nervous system. It was actually about beginning to build a relationship with this interoceptive network. And so this is where we started to really dig into the impact of interoception, which may be an unfamiliar term for some of your listeners, but interoception is sort of this capacity that we have to sense and feel everything within our own body, including our skin. So anything from feeling your heartbeat to muscles contract and extend to your stomach rumble. And that is all part of this interoceptive experience, which is a big part of being human is sensing and feeling your body, stuff that we take for granted, right? That's just below the surface. And so we started to understand that the interoceptive network, the capacity for us to feel and sense our own body is very dysregulated by chronic trauma. So that can sometimes mean, right, that that folks don't feel anything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sometimes it can be a, a lack of feeling or like, not really having access to feeling within the body, within maybe my whole body. Sometimes it can be that feelings and sensations feel um, really big and important. So a stomach grumble isn't just that. It, it, it almost feels like an emergency and can set off alarm bells in the body. So there's just this dysregulation of the system. And we started to, to be able to let go of an idea of we're trying to regulate a nervous system as opposed to we're just building a relationship with our internal experience, which can also mean bumping into painful stuff, or it can also yeah. mean bumping into regulation. Yeah, that, that makes so much sense because it, it, in a sense, like that desire to have the, you know, the regulated system is sort of part of the same mindset, right? That we're going for this ideal. Um, yeah, just like we're going for with the poses. Um, and that was so true of my experience with yoga because I started off with, with no interoceptive you know, capability, right? I was totally shut down. I was all in my head. And so for, for a while, traditional yoga was just great. You know, I'd come out, I'd, I'd get a pump, I'd get an endorphin rush. I'd feel like I was doing good for my body. But once I started opening up on the inside, I'd become very, and certainly initially became very dysregulated. I was kind of all over the place when I started doing therapy you know yoga just became really difficult because yeah as you say the assists would you know terrify me or i'd i can remember one yoga class this guy yeah really macho guy just came up and like grabbed my hips and put me into a straight plank and i i literally had to run out of the yoga studio because i was you know i I was it was you talk about this record you know i was just all over the place inside um and he kind of chased me into the changing room and demanded i go back into the class and i was just like just leave me alone right you know 
but yeah, everything you just said makes so much sense for me as, as somebody who sort of, you know, experienced trauma and, and, and the recovery from it. Exactly. And it, it is, you know, if we don't have that lens, then if we're not looking at it as trauma or like, you know, our students as autonomous individuals, as opposed to like, you know, a class of people that are supposed to comply, we can do so much harm, you know, by that, mm. you know, moment, like what you illustrate has happened so many times just to, to individual, you know, survivors who, if they had been met with an understanding of trauma, it would have gone entirely different, right? That was yeah. you claiming your agency, right? I'm, I'm out of here. Like I can't anymore, but you know. Yeah, in some ways, lens, I was, I, I, you know, I'd got sort of far enough that I could do that. But yeah, um, so, but yes, it's, um, yeah, it's, so, it's so true that what you said, because, because I, because certainly it's been my students, I, in terms of the regulation in my nervous system, I think I became m- much more deregulated in the early stages of my therapy and actually then became more regulated, but no longer shut down. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. it was that curve that I'd, I'd gone through. And we see, we saw that curve in the studies. And, you know, we've continued to have used this model of trauma-sensitive yoga in subsequent studies and have seen the same pattern that around week five to seven, there is an increase in symptoms. And because people are feeling more. And so that's when it's so important to titrate it, to, to really give autonomy and empowerment to the survivors so that they can pace themselves. And it's not on my timeline or some kind of you know, uh, predetermined timeline of, of what that looks like and, and when they're ready to move toward a certain form or try something that may be triggering, which sometimes can be that they never want to try a form that's triggering. You know, it's, it's not like mm-hmm. if we can all do happy baby and we're sexual assault survivors that then we're healed. It's just, it's, it's not like that, right? It's so personalized. Yeah. It's so personal. You know, what did I, 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 I love this quote on page 134 of your book. Um, <laughs> the, um, uh, I've got a can't read my own handwriting here. Um, the, pr- the principle of recovery is the empowerment of the survivor. She must be the author and arbiter of her own recovery. I just love. I just love that. I thought that was that was that was that was perfect. She must be the author and arbiter. So she she writes the script, but she's also in charge of the process. That's how I read that quote. That's right. That's right. And that comes out of the work of Judith Herman. I think that's a quote from Judith Herman who wrote Trauma and Recovery, a simply brilliant book that still continues to be um, kind of this centerpiece of the work that we do when we think about, okay, is this decision we're making, does this make sense? Is this in service of the survivor? We use her work to truly kind of anchor us in that way because, um, you know, there is this idea, I think in general, in, in the mental health system, in the yoga world, that the expert is, is is supposed to know how to heal you. I remember in early days, folks would come in for an individual session with me and say like, okay, what are, what are the yoga poses that are going to like remove trauma from my body? Like, it doesn't work like that. I'm sorry. It's very different from that, you know, but it's such a shift in orientation. I'm not going to write a prescription. I, I don't have it, you know? Um, it's just, it's so fascinating. And, and I think, you know, something you also mentioned around, um, when you were talking about your experience in, in yoga sessions, once you started really digging into your therapy and we see this a lot that there's this sense that the price of admission for, for yoga classes is like self-love and peace 
and all of this stuff. And it's such a loaded expectation when we're carrying suffering and pain and sometimes self-hatred and, you know, what I think we try to really create, and it's sometimes even hard to verbalize, but a space where the price of admission isn't self-love and you can actually bring all of yourself. You can bring your self-hatred. You can bring the self-loathing, the shame, the fear, and that it's all welcome. And you don't have yeah. to smile and you don't have to, you know, you're the people you're practicing with, you know? That, yeah. The number of times like the yoga cheetah just smile. Don't tell me to fucking smile. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. I know. I'm in pain. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that bypass, that. right? All that is is bypass. Like, you know, I, I saw this in the yoga world even during COVID. People, yogis and prominent folks, were talking about like, you know, why is there so much anger and rage? It's like because that is part of being human, you know. Yeah. And and so is pain. And if and it's not just about smiling because we are so much more of a multitude than that. Yeah, yeah, and it's. I suppose it's it's also like. It's just a very narrow way in which you can, um, you know, you can benefit from, tra- from from yoga. It seems to me like there is a way you can benefit from yoga if you go in there and you're just you're just in there to have a workout and to get some more de- de- and maybe just smile and try and cheer yourself up. Like yoga kind of can do that, but yeah, as you said, the promise of it that it's this sort of healing space for you know deep personal growth and and self and all of that you know that cannot that promise cannot be fulfilled by what is right now for a lot of yoga teachers a very you know a very sort of narrow style or application of the yoga principles it seems exactly exactly i couldn't say it better it's exactly what it is and and then for the survivor or the person who's coming in with their own pain then it becomes not there's something wrong with the yoga. Typically it's there's something wrong with me. So then we're just layering mm. on shame. Why am I so fucked up that I can't even go to yoga and relax and smile? You know, what's so wrong with me? And it's like, okay, we're, we're just doing more harm here, honestly. Mm. Yeah, that's what it sometimes felt like. I mean, that's why I ended up just not going to, to a lot of yoga classes. Was there only a few, maybe a few of the yin classes or, or the more restorative classes in the end that I could, I could go to with any kind of expectation of, yeah, like a place to kind of grow and heal and, and intercept, you know, not that I was using that word then, but um, yeah. Uh, so, so I ended up doing it mainly in self-practice. That's what I, and you know, I just didn't find any, any, <laughs> we need more of your centers where I live, but I just didn't find teachers in that mold. Yeah. And so, but what I found is I'm doing it at home. I can, because a lot of my tra- sort of trauma was st- stored in the back of my legs. And so downward dog nearly always made me cry. Right. <laughs> so I was finding that, you know, and actually just, I, there was part of me that wanted to keep doing Downward Dog, just the whole class and just hang out in it and process and work the feeling that was coming up from the Downward Dog. But there wasn't going to be a class where I could just do Downward Dog on my own for like 90 minutes. So that's why I, I took it, you know, took it home. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, in, when certainly when we had live classes right now, we have only Zoom classes, but we'll resume resume, you know, in-person work. Um, but we would often have folks come in and, and say like, I just want to be in the space. I'm going to lay on my mat or I might do like my PT exercises, but I just want to be here in community. And to Mm. me, that is also, you know, such a big component of healing that trauma happens in relationship. We were betrayed in relationship and harmed in it. And so then 
how do we recover? We build new relationships and connections and, and find the space to do that, which is often a huge amount of work. But when you can mm-hmm. create a community and a space where folks can show up as they are, however imperfectly, and, and be welcome, um, and whether that means doing downward dog for 90 minutes, whether that means laying on your mat for 90 minutes or, or you know, doing your PT exercises or some version of what you want. That or someone doing karate in the room as I sure. read the book. Right. Yeah, you definitely, <laughs> as, as a practitioner, as a, you know, facilitator, I have to let go of any classroom management, right? There's none of that. It's like, we're all just here doing our own thing. And that is beautiful. Yeah, that's right. It's beautiful. But it takes, it takes something to, to acknowledge that or like see beauty in that, see beauty in the chaos. There's what's the, oh, this is another quote I love. The torch of chaos and doubt. This is what the sage steers by. Uh, Chuang Tzu. I don't know if I pronounced that right, but yeah, that was another one of the quotes. That's, that's so true, isn't it? Yes, exactly. Exactly. It, it, it's like you've got to embrace. Yeah. In my own healing process, I've had to embrace the, ca- the, the chaos. Um, I've had to encourage the, the, the chaos of like what's happening in my body and my feelings and. And, and the doubt of if this is really the right thing, what, what's going on here? Like, you've got to allow yourself to kind of enter that space of just um, total, you know, unknowing. And, 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 uh, and, and in a sense, it's, it sort of takes quite a lot of courage to go into these spaces. You've just got to take that, that on and have faith that you're going to come out the other side into a slightly better place. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And that is, there's a huge unknown with that. And and that's why if it's too, in my mind, if it's too, um, the power resides with the practitioner, whether that's the therapist, the yoga teacher, whomever, then there's a missed opportunity to really listen into that kind of pacing, right? Like, um, you know, there oftentimes I find with sort of trauma recovery, there are stops and starts. And sometimes we have to pause and like slow the work down and then we can accelerate it. But that has to be on the terms of the survivor. And where they feel empowered to do that, as opposed to some external force, whether it's a system a provider that's saying, okay, it's week three, you should be doing this, and we should be doing this kind of work. Um, it's so delicately individualized. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I'm interested, what, what did you have to kind of contend with in your own leadership of the classes when you first started taking on, you know, leading, leading classes in this way? Well, you know, it was really interesting it, it always actually resonated with, I was so grateful to do this work because it felt like when I was previously teaching at studios and gyms and things, it didn't feel authentic to me. I think that I am a sort of a relational person who does appreciate this kind of power sharing, non-hierarchical leadership, but there was an expectation of like, you need to be clear and like own the space. And so it always felt inauthentic to me actually, but What was really interesting um, that we've kind of gone through this evolution, I think, in general in this model and at the Center for Trauma and Embodiment as a whole is thinking about um, initially we really wanted to decenter ourselves. You know, so there's this sort of energy in the yoga world of, you know, um, whether it's sort of a, a vestige of like guru culture or just this idea that like the yoga teacher becomes the, the thing to fixate on. They're sort of a celebrity or they've got their Instagram profile or their, their people are idealizing their body or how they, you know, whatever. And we knew we wanted to decenter ourselves so that it wasn't about us. What ended up happening though, is that we weren't quite holding the space enough. We were sort of like right. disappearing a bit 
and not sort of saying, okay, listen, we know that we're in a power dynamic here. We are in a position of power. So how do we hold that in a transparent way that is clear about our intention, but also invites feedback and input and signals that we're here to co-collaborate and create a thing as opposed to um, sort of like ducking that, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, I am in a position of power. So now how do I do that in a way where I lead from this space of, um, you know, collaboration? Right. So that's, that's interesting. So what would happen if you weren't holding the space in that way where you weren't clear with your intention and inviting the people what would happen if you if you derogated from that oh someone else in the space would you know so what right what, what you know i think is another kind of pattern of trauma right is that trauma also happens in families and systems and so a lot of folks that we worked with may have had early childhood experiences or you know inter sort of relational things where they were asked to, to parent at a young age but they had to step in it into a role that they weren't really able to, but we're sort of forced to, whether that's sort of the chaos of an abusive home or, you know, an alcoholic parent or, and so if I wasn't taking responsibility, someone else would. And then, and then there would be a recreation of trauma dynamics, you know? And so it became really important for us to be transparent and clear, but also invite input all of the time and input about things that didn't work or weren't working for folks. You know, it's not like I'm seeking praise. I would ask after every and continue to session. I would ask, you know, is there any feedback, anything that didn't work for you? Please feel free to let me know if I said something or thought about something during the session and thought, wow, you know, I was kind of cueing this a lot. Okay. Today I noticed I was cueing breath a lot. Let me know how that landed for you. If that was too much or it, you know, um, you'd want something different next time. So again, communicating that I'm here for my own self-reflection around my role as a facilitator. I don't have all the answers. We can figure yeah. this out together. Right, right. So it sounds like that's one of the art of this style of leadership is, is getting the feedback right, um, making sure you are, you are leading, right? you are holding the space. What are the other, the, 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 if you like, the arts that, that one masters in this? Yeah, I mean, I think that that, that is such a really uh, a big part of it. And also what I have found, and this is sometimes hard to verbalize to some degree because it is such, such a body-based experience, but we think about trauma, um, you know, trauma, perpetrators of trauma, who again are often also survivors themselves, but someone who is perpetrating trauma is typically vigilant about others, whether it's their behavior, their choices, their bodies. And when we are someone who is safe or safer, then we take responsibility for our own body. And so part of the work is actually being grounded in my own body. And so, and it's interesting, I even have um, clients in talk therapy who will reflect on it. They're like, I love when you take a deep breath and I can really feel that you are in your body. Like I'm taking responsibility for my own nervous system. I'm feeling what I'm feeling so that I can be present for you. And I'm not vigilant about what are you doing with your body? How are, are you dissociating? Are you okay? It's like, all right, I can hold space where all of that can happen, right? It's not about us also creating a space where people aren't dysregulated. It's about us staying regulated or grounded in our felt experience while others are also going through their process. So it's almost this parallel um, thing that happens. And I think that's true in leadership as well, right? Like 
for real collaboration and creativity to happen, we want to allow the people that we're leading or supervising to also have a voice, to have their own responses and reactions and to not personalize it, not let it impact necessarily us and just hold space for it. Even if it's like feedback, this isn't working. I don't like the way this pro, you know, we're doing this project or whatever that it, it, we can create space for that without feeling threatened and allow someone to express their thoughts and ideas. And out of that can come real creativity, I think. Innovation. It's such an important point you're making there that like, it's not, it's a, it's important not to get that balance between your attention on the room and the participants and and myself and, you know, how am I, how am I doing right now? Right. And that's part of the modeling and part of the leadership. That's right. That's right. There's that, um, there's this line of research around empathy and interoception. That's really fascinating that, um, you know, shows that when we do an interoceptive task, which could be counting your heartbeats, could be feeling your breath, that we actually have more capacity for empathy with others, right? And so how powerful is that when I feel my own, and it makes sense to a degree, right? When I feel myself and I, I am like in relationship with my felt experience, it's, it's easier, we would say, I guess, because I have more empathy to be in relationship with someone else. When I'm yeah. disconnected from my felt experience and I can't sense and feel myself, it's harder to be in relationship with others. Also makes sense, right? But it's yeah. not really something we talk about a lot. No, that's fascinating because, of course, the only organ we've got in order to sense what the other is feeling is our own body. So if we're not, that makes that's, that makes yeah, complete sense. And yet we tend not to talk about it in those terms. We tend we. Certainly, I tend to think about empathy as being my ability to focus on the other and less about my ability to intercept the tune into what's going exactly. on for me. Exactly. And I think such a hallmark of empathy and relationship is us sort of internalizing our own experience or, or sensing our own experience and then having that resonate with someone else. But mm. again, so nonverbal. And so it's really hard to even find words for it sometimes because yeah. it's nonverbal experience. That's right. And almost, yeah, it almost feels like because maybe in, in certainly in Western tradition, this sort of exploration of trauma is, is so, is so new. It does feel like the vocabulary is, is truncated. Like it feels like we need, like the Eskimos have however many words for snow. It feels like we need at least as many words for these different experiences that we find ourselves in when we're working with trauma. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that, that makes sense. Um, so yeah, one of the things I was, you know, said to you before the show is that you know this this podcast, you know, we get a lot into management and leadership, and um, yeah, I was just pondering as we came on how much of this kind of crosses over into people who are leading a classroom or people who are leading a, a, a you know a, a team in a business. Uh, um, have you know, you know, I suppose have you done a lot of thinking around like the crossover of these principles into other realms of life absolutely i mean and truly i have um this work has impacted my capacity as a parent or my the way that i parent the way that i work with my talk therapy clients um the way i show up in my marriage like it it truly it um i want to say this it's like you know, one thing that I really appreciate about this work and working in this way is, could I call myself an expert in trauma? Maybe, sure. But like, am I an expert in your trauma? 
or anyone else's? Absolutely not. You know, and so maintaining this curiosity about um, and this sort of beginner's mind almost with the Mm. work has helped me do that in talk therapy, has helped me do that as a parent to think about, all right, I'm going to make a series of assumptions about what my child is experiencing, but truly, I don't know what it is like for them. I don't know what it feels like. And so can I be curious about it? Can I wonder? Can I let them lead? Um, and I think that's also a thing that we explore in the, in the yoga work is, especially with adolescents, we ask every time we work with them, do you want to lead the form or should I? You know, where it becomes this dance of like, all right, maybe you want to lead me and you can be in the position in the seat of power. I think sometimes in leadership, when we hold on too tightly to that power, it, it becomes that then that becomes the struggle as opposed to the project that we're working on, whatever it might be. So it's like, how do we step out of the way and yeah. allow us to like flow in communication and creativity and ideas um, and 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 know that that we don't have to hold on tightly or like enforce that leadership, you know? And I think that that happens in this work. I, I think about me as a provider, it's like, am I supposed to have answers? Like I usually typically just have more questions or curiosity. And then we find the answer together. And that's the, that is the work. Right. Right. Yeah. That makes so much sense. And I think that, well, in the same, in the same way that, we have it often, you know, the, the yoga student might have an expectation on the yoga teacher. They're going to lead the class. They're going to tell me how to move. They're going to tell me which poses I need to do. We often have that same expectation of, of, of senior leaders and managers in the workplace. Like you're, you're going to come up with the answers here. You're going to tell me what to do. You're going to tell me what the plan is. And, and yet the way I think to get the most out of people in, in let's say, in businesses is to have that curiosity like to to let go of that as a leader and to focus in on each individual and get curious about what they could offer like what interests them what their contribution could be what their answer to this particular problem might be um exactly. so i see the parallel exactly i have this um very distinct memory of a participant who came in years ago to the center to to do classes and at that point she had um I think like a treatment team, which is not uncommon if you've got a complex trauma or a lot of things going on. She had someone she was working with for eating disorders. She had a two ther- like a psychiatrist, a therapist, and then maybe someone else that she was working on with DBT. So she had a lot of cooks in the kitchen, so to speak. And I remember after the first class, I was like, oh, you know, how was it for you? And she said, I was so frustrated that you wouldn't just tell me what to do because it's all about choices, right? In the work. and like, I totally get that. I, I get that that would be frustrating. And she was then in the moment reflecting on how she's used to this dynamic of her providers telling her what to do. And that can be loving and caring. It's not that it's from a mean spirited place, but there is this dynamic of, you know, okay, the expert has, the provider has the answers and they're going to tell me, and then I'm going to get better as opposed to actually the answers are within me and we're going to co we're going to figure this out together. And I think that is a really big paradigm shift, whether we're talking about leadership, whether we're talking about care, um, mental health or yoga, it's different. It is different, but it, it feels like to me, it, it is the prerequisite for all of it. Right? Right. It's the prerequisite for any healing, any thriving, any, it's, it, it, that's the first move is, oh, it's, it's my job. <laughs> yeah, it's my job. Now I might seek people out 
to help me, but that it's 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 my job and it's an inside job. Yeah, right, right. And I think about the idea of like kind of a, a Sherpa's role or someone that like sort of like can guide you on the path, but like you still have to walk it. You still have to do that. You still have to you know take care of your breathing and bring your supplies and do all the things. And there is this um, maybe there's a guide, but. I still don't know exactly what's going to be on the path, right? You know, as we sort of travel through the proverbial forest or up the mountain or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I think is, well, it's, it's almost like as gen, gently or as forcefully as it's required. That's one of the jobs of us as leaders is, is to impart that right on, on the other as to the extent that we can, right? This is, this is for you to take on. And it's, and it's, it's almost like your, your job, to get in touch with your intuition at some level to direct me as, as, as your guy, <laughs> like there's right. that dynamic going on. That's right. Absolutely. It's like, I'm also, yes, having my own kind of internal input and sensing and intuition that I have to tune into and think, okay, is that, is that also my stuff? <laughs> right. Mm. Is that my history that's popping up or is that an intuition about how I can serve this person? And so that also takes a huge amount, which to me, a lot of that work is also that interoceptive network. It's sensing and knowing, you know, what, how my body is responding to things so much more quickly than my thoughts are. Right. So I can sense something before I even know it and being able to tune into that. It's just more information for me to have as a provider. Yeah. That, that, that's so true. Like, I think that's maybe, maybe one of the, the, the skills here as well as leaders you know, is, is starting to, sense like when am i just projecting my own stuff on the other and how much is this genuinely my intuition about what help might help this person in this moment i'm just thinking about me with my kids i've got two kids and, you know the times i you know look back at my parenting i'm like ah you know it's it's always when i've i've decided what that what they need yes yes <laughs> exactly exactly and it is this like kind of shift to be like okay well, let's get curious right but it, it does require us to kind of uh, step out of that seat of power or just shift it as opposed to like, mm. I'm going to tell you what you need to do, you know? And that's, that's how this structure has been done, whether we're talking about parents or leaders or, you know, whomever for a really long time. That's, that's part of that yeah. triangulated structure. Yeah. And, and of course, why don't we want to do, or certainly why do I not want to go inside? It's because very often the moment is, is triggering me. Yes. And for me to go inside and to intercept and get in touch, I'm going to have to feel my own pain. And I don't want to do that. So it's a lot easier for me just to tell, you know, my kid to do this thing right now, because I don't want to face into my own pain, which would be needed for me to like in this moment, I'm being triggered to, um, to get in touch with them and with me. Right. Exactly. And that's one of the things that we pull from for sure from the yogic tradition is the self-study or svadhyaya, this idea this practice of knowing yourself, doing your own internal work in service of being able to show up and hold space for others. And that's something I think, um, certainly in my therapy training, we, we were encouraged, but it wasn't, it wasn't really stressed the importance of us knowing our stuff and continuing to do that work. You know, any therapist who doesn't have their own therapist, it's like I would run from. It's like we need we need to do our own work too to be able to continue to be there for others. Yeah, but but 
it's so true. And I, I hadn't realized until I think this year that this term samskara, which is in the yodic tra- tradition, right? You know, these, these hidden patterns, these, um, what we might call trauma patterns from the past. That's, that, that's, that's a part of the yogic tradition. I didn't hear a yoga teacher once in any of the classes. This isn't me like, this is me a rant against like, but it, but it's interesting that that's, that's never talked about. You know, I knew all of the, the Sanskrit names for the poses and yet some of these like fundamental, uh, ideas that pertain to us healing ourselves are just not, don't seem to be, uh, talked about. That's right. Yeah. There is this heavy emphasis on the physicality. This like one tiny, kind of tiny piece of the whole yoga tradition. Mm. There's so much more, you know, richness there. And, um, exactly. We can see those patterns and, observe them, welcome them, understand them. And as a part of our healing and a part of our yogic journey as well. Yeah. And so, yeah, to, to, yeah, to explore them. I mean, and, and it's all, it, it, yeah, it's all of it, right. It's all, yeah. It's about seeing the whole because the poses are, you know, do have value and they, you know, they're important, but as you say, they're just a, a tiny slice of it. Right. Yeah. And so on the, on the research side, like you talked about those early, studies and you were looking at um, heart rate variability and the physiological science like wh- wh- where's the study taking you now is that something you're still active you know within the center absolutely we just um there's a, a large study it was about a five-year study out of the atlanta va in the united states that um was just published they also they did look at hrv but in large part because the technology has changed um and you don't but they took other measures like saliva and whatnot um, to, to look at hormones, I think, I think cortisol. Um, but one of the things that was really impactful, uh, we had a little leftover time and money after our first randomized control t- trials. So we did a pilot looking at doing some brain scans. It was a very small cohort doing pre and post brain scans after 20 weeks of yoga and this particular model, TCTSY. And we, we saw changes in the interoceptive network. We saw, um, you know, more connectivity in the insula which is this part of the brain that is really responsible for sensing and, and feeling. And then the medial prefrontal cortex, which is this other part of the brain that helps us to know that we are sensing. One thing to have the sensation. It's another thing to actually know I'm sensing my feet on the ground. I'm here in my office, you know, in my home. That's, that's a, a, another complex layer that we take for granted and isn't always present for someone who's experienced trauma. You know, when you experience trauma, it, it can behoove you to not actually be where you are, you know, to not yeah. feel intense where you are, because potentially, whether that's home or work or, you know, whatever, wherever you are, you are trapped by the power dynamics and you can't leave. It helps for you to, quote unquote, leave in a mental, physical way, you know, to disconnect from the experience. So to know that you're present can be actually a liability if where you are is dangerous mm. or painful mm. or um, neglectful. So, you know, to sense and know where you are is, um, is a, is a big part of, of what we continue to explore. And, um, we have a couple of, we have a perinatal study that's in the works now. Um, and then another one working with, um, folks in indigenous communities. So we're just continuing to do research alongside just doing the work as well. Um, yeah. And it's interesting that it's so interesting that we sort of need all these studies, right? You know, they go done the studies in meditation and they found all the benefits there that, you know, these traditions that just would not have survived, right? If they were not a benefit to people right, for exactly. millennia, right? But yeah. 
Right. We, our is, Western mind is addicted to them. But yes, but does it actually work? Give me the proof. <laughs> so true. I know it is. That is a, a thing that's an absolute edge there. You know, it's sort of this um, kind of colonization of the whole thing, right? Where we come in like, well, is this real? It's like, is this a 5,000 year old tradition? It absolutely is real and has huge benefit. But I get it. You got to look at it through our lens. <laughs> but well, maybe that is the way. I mean, maybe that's part of the importance of this work is it, it's the way of bringing it into our culture like that's that the way we sort of ingest this wisdom somehow right right and for better or for worse right that that has always been our our goal is to bring it in not as the sort of adjunctive treatment or like a specialty kind of thing but as a a model that can be embedded in the western medical model and again it's not that that's perfect or it's problematic in certain ways but then that generates access. Then that is something that's being talked about, not just by folks on the quote unquote fringe, but, you know, people that are in positions of power in the field of mental health or the field of trauma care. Right. So, and, and well, it sounds like you presumably you must have some hope that that's possible because there might be a view that says, oh, you know, they're, you know, they're addicted to the, you know, to the pills and the medical model and the external interventions. And there's sort of, there's no hope for that whole medical industrial complex, but it sounds to me like you've got some hope for, for, for transformation reform there. For sure. And I do think that, um, you know, as much as I have plenty of critiques of the medical model, there's also, you know, there is opportunity for benefit and healing. And I think that continuing to, you know, bring in this kind of work, is part of that. I mean, um, you know, I, I think part of our stance has always been as well that it's, it's not that we can't be in conjunction or be in tandem with medication, with traditional talk there. We want to be embedded in all of that because there can be benefit and there also can be harm, you know, but much mm. like any of this, right. There can be benefit from yoga and there can be harm if it's well, done. That's also true, right? Yeah. Right. And so, yeah, yeah. Not romanticizing either one either, you know, like mm. that that yoga can create just as much harm as the the kind of industrial complex in the medical model. Right. Yeah. I guess that's true. As you say, the sort of the dark side of I just immediately comes to mind the dark side of the guru culture and where that can lead. Right. Indeed. Yeah. Almost every major, you know, tradition of yoga has a history that is involves um, you know, guru abuse or like, you know, a person in that role. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it just reminds me of somebody who was talking about the, the ayahuasca traditions and how, you know, some people go there and they have these incredible, you know, transformative experiences. And yet there are the shamans out there, you know, some of whom are abusing their position there. Right. So, yeah, I guess that's true that any, whenever you create any kind of system of humans, <laughs> there are going to be individuals within it who, who find power and then abuse that power. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. And I think that, um, you know, that is also that like part of when we founded the Center for Trauma and Embodiment, we wanted to have this parallel process of we're thinking about the work, we're thinking about the trauma care, but also we're thinking about ourselves as leaders. So we're, as we, you know, create other models for trauma healing, we have a weightlifting program, a theater-based program. As we supervise other people, we want to think about us as also the survivorship among us so that someone that I, you know, it's not this double standard of I'm going to treat my clients with care and attention, but my coworkers, like whatever, you know, we, we try to extend that same care to one another as well. 
as coworkers. And that to me is, is another thing that we also see is that double standard where maybe the care that's being given to clients is really wonderful and top notch, but the health of the organization is like very trauma insensitive or very harmful um, Mm -hmm. where power is being abused or leveraged. And so it's really important for us to be consistent in our, in all of our roles around how we um, are in relationship with other human beings, you know, and, and other survivors. Yeah, that makes a lot of yeah. Be, be the change and all that, right? You yeah, yeah. Well, I, I couldn't help but notice, you know, weightlifting, trauma sensitive weightlifting. That sounds uh, that sort of made me smile. But it's interesting. It's, I've also been finding with some. There's a particular weight movement that I'm doing right now, which involves like bringing a ball over my head, and it and it tweaks some, my knees. And I also been recently getting presents to how much you know I've been holding in my knees and. Yeah, literally end up like in tears after doing one of these, you know, this particular style of exercise, you know, I'm working through some trauma there. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of any physicality, right, can bring us close to, to our trauma patterns. That's right. That's right. And, and weightlifting comes at it from such an interesting perspective around really looking at um, expanding the window of tolerance. You know, when you, they sort of based around Olympic style weightlifting and so using really heavy weights that does it does bring a bit of a fight or flight, you know, fear response. Mm-hmm. And so like, how do we titrate that in a way in relationship with the trainer where you feel like you have complete control and autonomy as a survivor to say, okay, it's too much. Or like, okay, I'm going to try to push myself, but I could also end up in a puddle of tears. And like, let's just see, but yeah. like that it's, I mean, not let's just see in a casual cavalier way, but in a way that's like exploratory and curious and, um, and client led. Yeah. But that, that, but yeah, that that makes total sense, and it's almost like, yeah, I suppose in my mind, it's like almost getting away from that idea that we have these transformative experiences in these like these semi mystical settings, you know, of the yoga studio. <laughs> no, when we've all sort of right. sat there, you know, it can happen. Yeah, doing the removals or you know at the gym or yeah anywhere, right? I mean, traumas we're carrying our trauma in all spheres of life, so it's almost like we need trauma sensitive cultures that's right i mean there is this this push you know and um i sometimes i wonder if sometimes i think the work is real and then maybe it's also lip service but there's energy around you know school districts becoming trauma you know sort of sensitive or trauma-informed providers or you know there's initiatives at least in the states around like the you know the um the state kind of taking on the mantle of being kind of kind of trauma-informed in the whole and even if it's imperfect, I appreciate that the conversation is even happening around that, mm. you know, thinking about, you know, there's so much beneath the surface to anyone that, that we don't know what their, their lived experience is. And um, trauma is an epidemic and it needs to be met in such a way, you know? Yeah. It's an epidemic. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's like, it's, it's part of the human experience right and and it has been as long as humans have existed as you know as far as i can tell um yeah and and yet addressing it and resolving it at least from my perspective is the most valuable thing someone can do with their their time right it's 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 the keys to to the kingdom Um, that's right and yet we yeah there are only pockets of us really talking about it yeah good Okay, I know you need to run. Um, so thank you so much for your time, Jen. Um, we'll we'll put links to to the book, Embodied Healing, and then the original uh, 
the the original book, um, Trauma Center View, the, the Black Orchid Project uh, that you mentioned, David Emerson wrote, and links to the center. Is there anywhere else you'd send people? I think traumasensitiveyoga.com is really, that's kind of got a lot of our information and trainings, but also has, you know, resources, articles, videos that folks can watch to, to just learn and, and kind of dive more deeply into things. Brilliant. Okay. Thank Great. you so much for the, for the, for the conversation and for, and for the work you're doing. Um, yeah, I just re- really appreciate it. Um, Thanks yeah, for having so me. Thank it's my pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.